0: Good evening. Can you hear me? Great. All right. Um, A very warm welcome to the inaugural lecture for Professor Christian Schuster. My name is Jennifer Hudson. I'm the Dean of the Faculty of Social and Historical Sciences. And it's a particular pleasure to be here to welcome you, um, particularly because uh, I worked with Christian very closely when I was in the political science department. And I know firsthand his brilliance, um, not just as an academic researcher, but as a a colleague. And it's been a real privilege to to work alongside Christian. Uh, Christian's lecture tonight, The Management Foundations of Good Government, um, will be introduced properly by the head of Department of Political Science, Professor Ben Lauderdale. And following Christian's lecture, we have Notes of Appreciation by Martin Lodge from the LSE. And then after that, um, it's a real pleasure to welcome you back to 3638 Gordon Square, For drinks uh, and reception, and to say congratulations to Christian. Um, Just very briefly, welcome, come on in. There's lots of seats in the front row, as ever. That's all right? This is good? We like big audiences.
1: bureaucracy, it's not me.
0: Great. Um, Let me just say a little bit why I think this is such a a lovely occasion. Um, Rarely, maybe since the the time academics defend their viva, do they get such a captive audience to hear about the research, um, their findings, and to have people come and really listen about What motivates them? What gets them out of bed in the morning? And I think Inaugurals are a real testament to the contribution that that Christian has made to the field of public management. But it also lets us a little bit know more about Christian as the researcher. What gets him out of bed in the morning? What are those driving questions that I think are really inherent to each academic and why we love the job that we do? So tonight, no pressure, Christian, Uh, tonight, um, enjoy uh, uh, the insights from, from Christian's lecture, really a reflection of his, of his achievements to date, um, and maybe a little bit of signposting about what's to come. So with that, let me uh, invite Professor Ben Lauderdale to give you a formal introduction to
2: Christian. Since I'm the one giving it, it won't be that formal, but um, it will fill the necessary role within the, uh, within the event. Um, great. Thank you all for coming um, and uh, thank you, Jennifer. Um, So I am going to aim to be brief in introducing Christian and and his work so that we can get on to to the content you're actually here for. Um, So Christian's core research interests are in comparative civil service management and Christian's work has yielded, I think, important insights into how to motivate public employees, how to measure corruption and understand patronage, patronage networks and how to recruit civil servants, um, as well as how to make meaningful comparisons on these kinds of questions across different countries. Much of Christian's work has sought to extend the kinds of data used to assess questions of public administration. His work uses data from original surveys, from administrative records, and from field experiments, um, all at unusual scales. Um, His research projects include largest of their kind single country studies, as well as large Um, many country cross-national studies. Um, He's been an investigator on four large grants um, from the UK Department of International Development, the Inter-American Development Bank, and the Economic and Social Research Council in the UK. So Christian is also completing a handbook on public administration data with a number of co-authors, which is forthcoming with the World Bank. So public administration is one of those topics which I think alas, most people in the world suspect might be boring. This is true of many things that academics study. To be fair, it's probably true of chemistry and a whole bunch of other subjects as well. Um, I suspect it's not the reaction of the people who've come out today. So thank you all for, for holding a, a more a, more understanding view. Um, but I am pretty confident it's a widespread view among among normal people. Um, so, For those people, the functioning of bureaucracies and the behavior of civil servants just sounds incredibly dull. And I think many people associate these aspects of government with the sort of the least exciting, the most frustrating moments in our lives. And that somehow spills over to how people think about public management. But this basic functionality um, of public administration and and state capacity more generally is, is just massively important in shaping our lives. Um, and it also varies enormously across and within developed and, and developing countries. Um, you know, I, I work on very different topics than, than Christian does. And, you know, the areas of research that I work on sometimes have a superficial dose of, of, of entertainment, um, which distracts from the fact that the stakes aren't actually very high a lot of the time. Um, but bureaucratic politics has a superfa- superficial lack of entertainment, which distracts from the fact that it really profoundly shapes our lives, sometimes for good and sometimes for ill. Um, of course, anyone who's ever talked to people who work in public service knows that the stories, the characters, and the incentives are all themselves fascinating um, as well as consequential. And these are often obscured from people in the world, but good research makes them accessible. So. Um, the scope of Christian's engagement with governments around the world is considerable. He's collaborated with, um, with over 25 governments in his, his research, um, as well as international organizations like the World Bank, like the Inter-American Development Bank. Um, his engagement with these organizations is not just at the point of collecting data from them to enable him to do his work, but he is strongly engaged um, with governments about what they can learn from his work Um, working with them, and his research has led to management changes in dozens of, of government organizations across the world. So this kind of public impact work is outstanding even in our department where there are many academics who are engaged with organizations and governments around the world. So in the last few years, Christian has made contributions to UCL, particularly along the lines of supporting public engagement and research impact, not just his own, but that of others. He is an academic co-director of the UCL Policy Lab, which he helped design and build alongside our colleagues in economics and the lab director, Mark Steers, who is here today. Christian took on that role immediately after finishing his Um, His term as Director of Education for our department, um, which concluded with the very quiet and easy academic year of 2019-20, which calmly ended um, as as the spring came. Um, Christian was a natural choice to lead the department on teaching in that role um, because of his own excellence in teaching. He's he's been a winner of both departmental and UCL teaching awards. so I guess what I can say sort of to sum up is that Christian seems to have more time in his day than many of us. Um, the fact that he's done this outstanding work as a teacher, as an administrator, and in large collaborative research projects means there's still, you know, despite all the time in his day, not enough of Christian to go around. Um, before I, I hand off to Christian, I, I'll just say again what Jennifer said at the beginning. There's a drinks reception after the lecture in 36 Gordon Square. Um, And now I'll hand off to Christian um, to give his inaugural lecture, um, The Management Foundations of Good Government.
1: So thank you so much, um, Jennifer, for the lovely welcome. Thank you so much for that uh, very flattering uh, introduction. Germans are generally very uncomfortable with that. Uh, but I was, I was trying to sit through it. Thank you so much, man. <laughs> now, um, I also need to start by thanking all of you um, for coming tonight. And I mean that genuinely. Uh, when I started at UCL, I remember on my first day, I was walking through the halls of the department. Uh, and we have these sort of, as you know, these sort of labyrinthic setup of our, our department. And so I, I, I bumped into a colleague in the hallway. Um, and so he said, welcome to the department. So what do you study? Uh, And so I told him with great excitement, I study bureaucracy, and so I remember that his eyes widened, he looked at me in disbelief. And he said, Christian, that is so boring. (laughs) So genuinely, thank you very much for for coming tonight. Now, before delving into the substance of the research, because of that stereotype that lingers around about, about bureaucracy, I just want to talk a little bit or contextualize a little bit about why we might find it both motivating and really interesting to study bureaucracy and to study in particular the management foundations of good government. And to do that, uh, I need to talk about a yellow overground, a bridge, a high rise, and an ivory tower. The yellow overground you see in the top left is an overground in the city that I grew up with. Uh, the city, sorry, that I grew up in. The city I grew up in is a, is a city in southwestern Germany. Uh, it's a large industrial city. It's the home of Bosch. It's the home of Porsche. It's the home of Mercedes. What is slightly less known about it is that it's also the home, at least when I was growing up there, it's also home to excellent public services. In fact, when Mercedes engineers in the morning take the overground to work at, at, at Mercedes, they often say things like, I'm taking the longest self-driving Mercedes in the world to work. So in other words, this overground is so comfortable, so clean, so spacious, that citizens perceive that they have a Mercedes-like experience in this public service. Now contrast that with the bridge in the the top left or top right corner here. Uh, This is a bridge in Guatemala, a country I worked in uh, for several years with the World Bank. Um, And what you wouldn't immediately suspect here is this is a relatively new bridge. that governments recently constructed a high quality bridge would allow citizens from one side of the river to travel to to the other side of the river, for instance, to sell their goods, uh, to go to school, or whatever other objective they might have. Now, as you can see in 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 that picture, that relatively new bridge relatively soon collapsed because it was poor quality. And so that, of course, then begs the question, why is it that governments around the world that often try to deliver similar services and deliver similar outcomes and outputs to citizens, why is it that some of them deliver a Mercedes-like experience to citizens while others are not even able to construct a bridge that holds? But then more importantly, from a practical perspective, how is it that we can get from a government administration that produces a broken bridge to one that produces excellence in public service? This is what Francis Fukuyama calls the getting to Denmark problem. This Denmark being this mythical land where public services are plentiful, impartial, and of high quality. So how can we ensure that countries around the world are getting to Denmark? So in the initial part of my career, uh, I worked in this in practice. I was with the World Bank, I was first in DC, um, then I was based in Guatemala uh, for several years uh, in, this, in this tower here uh, in, the, in the bottom left. And Sort of as is typical in these kind of roles, I worked on a range of governance reform projects. So from anti-corruption in construction to transparency in Congress, to things like participatory budgeting uh, in municipalities. Um, But there was one thing that across all of these projects I really feared, and that was an email. But to contextualize, let me briefly explain to you how these projects work. So if you run these kind of projects, what you do is that the World Bank and the government agrees to pursue a certain type of project. Then typically a project implementation unit is hired inside that government agency to deliver the project. Um, then you deliver or you develop sort of manuals to implement the project. You define precisely who are the beneficiaries. And then after sort of 12 months, you start and you implement the project. But then you fear that one email. Sometimes it's an email. Sometimes it's a colleague running into your office. And that email would typically say, the minister has changed. Okay? Now, in this country, of course, changing ministers is like a sport. Um, so <laughs> That shouldn't be something that particularly traumatizes you if, you if you sort of try to implement projects. But the difference, of course, between this country and a place like Guatemala and many countries in the global south uh, is that Guatemala does not have a professional civil service. And so what happens when a minister changes is that the vice minister changes, the head of the department changes, and oftentimes the technical people that you work with along all this time changes well. And the new people that come in are people that are hired by this new minister that are loyal to this new minister. And they're not necessarily qualified for the tasks that they're hired to do, but they're there because they're politically loyal. And of course what that means is then you have this new team with whom you redefine the objectives of the project to align them with the priorities of the minister. Then you set out a new set of uh, manuals and procedures so that this project can be implemented. And then you start implementing the project and then the email comes again. The minister has changed. And so in this kind of context, project implementation becomes a little bit like waiting for Godot. And it doesn't matter whether you implement the governance project or whether you implement an education project or whether you implement a health project. It is incredibly hard to get anything done. Um, And so at the time then, I, I came to believe, and I still believe that today, that a professional civil service is in some sense the mother of all reforms. That if you don't have a professional civil service, it's extremely hard to get anything else in government done. And so then I turned to research and was trying to read up about, okay, in these partition roles, how do we get to that? Sort of how do we get to that part of Denmark, that professional civil service? and At the time in particular, there wasn't a lot of research on it. And so I decided, uh, well, I decided to start doing research on it myself. So then I moved to that ivory tower. And so what I want to do in this talk is talk you through what I sort of learned about from research about how we can get to good governments. So how can we get to this mythical land of Denmark but with a particular application to the civil service. So how can we get a professional Denmark-like civil service? And I wanna talk through four approaches. The first three are sort of the ones that we typically see in scholarship and practice, and I wanna to talk to you about my research on them and potentially suggest that they're less effective than we might hope. Um, and then I'll try to introduce an alternative approach and try to convince you of an alternative approach of, of getting to Denmark. So the first approach is a legal approach, the idea being we can get to good Denmark if we legislate for a country to look like Denmark. The second approach is a political economy approach. The idea being, if only we understand the political incentives to get to good government, we can get to good government. The third one is a problem-driven approach, which is the idea, let's just focus on local problems in organizations and fix them one by one, then we get to good government. And I'll try to sort of critique them along the way, and then I'll be trying to convince you of a fourth approach, which is a data-informed best practice approach. And what I'm trying to say with that is that we can use data both to identify what kind of management practices make governments work better everywhere. So those I call here the management foundations of good government. No matter where you implement them, they make make governments work better. We can use data to identify those, but we can also use data to identify and pinpoint in which organizations which of these practices are lacking. And if you have the two, you have a recipe for reform. And then because we're in the UK, I'll try to draw some implications um, from all of this for the UK. So the first four are about getting to good government, but of course the the UK's struggle is mainly around maintaining good government. And so I'll try to extrapolate what we can learn from all of this about maintaining good government in the UK. So let's start with this first approach, legal reform approach. So here the idea is if we want to get good government, what we need is legislation that requires good government. So what this means is for instance, We pass procurement laws that require that governments purchase goods and services through competitive bidding and not because they get some WhatsApp message from somebody who wants a contract. Uh, Or it means we pass anti-corruption legislation that prohibits and sanctions conflicts of interest. Or it means we pass, in my case, civil service legislation which mandates a professional civil service. So for instance, laws which require all governments to recruit public servants through merit examinations, through open competitions, rather than allowing them simply to appoint their friends or their their political party affiliates. And so one of the first things I did was I was trying to figure out whether that is effective. And the way I did this is I coded civil service legislation with a team of RAs in 120 countries across 40 years. And I was particularly interested in whether there's a law in place in a country that requires the government to hire through merit examinations. Okay, so simply, does it have a law that says you have to hire through merit examinations? And then I was trying to see how that relates to meritocracy in practice. Uh, And this graph here, I use a a, a very coarse proxy indicator from the Varieties of Democracy project for this. And so what I want you to do is just focus for a moment on the bottom line here. The bottom line here is the number of countries that have this merit-based civil service legislation, that have a legislation that says, or a constitution that says you have to hire based on merit. You can see that up until the 90s, this number is pretty flat. It's about 35 countries in the world. This is basically OECD countries that have this kind of legislative requirement. And then you can see that since the 1990s, there's been an explosion in this number. Uh, so the number doubled between 1990 and 2000 and increased to almost 100 uh, by, uh, by 2015. So in other words, by now, most countries, at least most countries that I was able to code, uh, have merit-based civil service legislation on the books. Okay? And now if you look from the 1990s forward and compare this upshot in merit legislation with merit in practice, you can see that since the 1990s, if we just look at the second line here, this is sort of a proxy indicator for meritocracy in practice, we can see that that has basically flatlined. So in other words, the world went from having very few countries with merit-based civil service legislation to most countries having merit-based civil service legislation, and in the same period, there was no improvement in actual meritocratic recruitment into government. Okay. We can also show that statistically, but this is sort of giving you a, a visual aid here. Then the question of course becomes, so why is it the case, why is, might this legal approach to good government, which clearly is very popular, and I should say this was of course a lot of donor-sponsored reforms here, so the World Bank's core to its good governance agenda was to try to push this kind of legislation. Uh, same with USAID, DFID, etc. So why is it that even if you introduce these kind of laws, you don't see improvements in practice? Um, And so one of the the first things I did as part of my research is to do a lot of interviews on this next to this coding. So I did 130 interviews uh, with uh, civil service reformers in Paraguay and the Dominican Republic, among others on this this question. Um, And sort of two key mechanisms for this is that these laws are neither necessary nor sufficient to improve actual management practice. Um, So why might it not be sufficient to have a law that mandates that you hire bureaucrats based on merit Well, it's not sufficient because either there might be legal loopholes or the law is just ignored altogether. These are often weak rule of law contexts. Or, and this is something that happens more often than you might seem, is people comply with the law but in a facade way. Um, So if you ever have this requirement in your job and you want to hire your friend, there are a lot of different ways to achieve that. You can tailor the terms of reference to your preferred candidate. You can leak exam materials. You can you can lose applications that are too strong, that might, uh, might be preferable to the candidate you want to hire. You can manipulate exam results, etc. So there are many different ways, if you want to, that you can undermine meritocratic recruitment into government. But interestingly, I also found in these cases that it's not necessary to have this law. So if you want to have good management practice in government, it's typically not the case that the law prohibits you from doing that. So in other words, there are countries that move towards merit recruitment, even though there wasn't a law requiring it. Because there's no law prohibiting it either. It's not like the law says you have to hire your, your friends and your party members. The law doesn't do that. So in other words, your possibility frontier in practice is basically unaltered by the presence or the absence of this, of this law. So this is the first approach, the legal reform approach. And my, my data here suggests that that might not be the most effective way of getting to Denmark. And there's, of course, colleagues that have looked at that for a lot of other types of good government reforms, anti-corruption, public financial management, and they've come to similar conclusions. The second approach then is a political economy approach. So here the idea is that we can get to good government by understanding the political incentives and disincentives to introduce good government. Okay, now to illustrate that, um, I just have a little bit of audience participation. A lot of students here, you'll have to forgive me that. I'd like you to imagine the following, okay? So imagine you lived in New York City in 1850, okay? And I just want to, we'll have a brief show of hands in a second of who you would vote for, okay? So New York City had a classic politicized civil service at the time, it's the same way we have them in many developing countries today. So in other words, those people who worked for government were there because of political loyalty. So they were not public servants, they were political servants. As a result of that, what they delivered weren't public services, but were political services. So for instance, if you wanted access to water, that was a political servant from, political service from that political servant in the administration. And it happened if you were political, politically loyal, if you wanted access to electricity or heat, if you wanted the fire truck to come to your house, you needed to make sure that you and your block would have voted for the governing party, otherwise you would not have received those services. Okay? So I'd like to have a brief show of hands, who in this context would vote for the incumbent so that they can retain access to fire trucks, water, and electricity, and who would vote for the opposition? So who would vote for the incumbent? Okay, very good, thank you very much, I appreciate that. Um, So what you can immediately see here is that this kind of system creates huge electoral advantages for the incumbent. Because it's extremely risky to vote for the opposition. If you vote for the opposition, you're okay if the opposition wins and takes over, but what if if the opposition doesn't win? then you no longer have access to key public services, which you need, so you're gonna vote for the incumbent. And so that's what a lot of colleagues have statistically shown. So these political economy approaches are really helpful for helping us understand why good government reforms might not happen, right? They might not not happen because having not good government is politically advantageous. But if we want to get to Denmark, of course, it's helpful to understand why we don't get to Denmark, but we kind of also need to understand how we get to Denmark. And on that question, political economy approaches are slightly less insightful. In other words, they're better at explaining lack of reform than giving us any sort of actionable guidance on how we actually get to reform. Um, and let me just give you one example from, from uh, my own work. So in, my, in another part of my own early work, I looked at the political economy of these kind of reforms. I was really excited about finding the political conditions under which this kind of thing might happen. And so I looked in particular, I was interested in how who controls patronage shapes whether this kind of reform happens. So who controls the politicized civil services? Is it the president, is it Congress, for instance, how that shapes whether these kind of reforms happen? And what I ultimately found is that the conditions under which these kind of things happen are tend to be quite rare and happen in a, in a sort of government-wide sense. Let me just give you, and that of course means it's hard to go from there to getting to good Denmark. Let me just give you the example of the, of the US case, which is one of the cases that I, I studied. So in the US, what very few people know, the US had a sort of politicized civil service uh, until uh, the, late, uh, the late 1800s. And the real push in practice towards a professional civil service in practice came under Theodore Roosevelt, so in the early 20th century. And Theodore Roosevelt pushed for this reform because the politicized civil service was not controlled by him, but by his competitors in the legislature. So how was it possible that he came to the presidency in the first place if the whole system is around you win elections through patronage, through a politicized service, and he did not control that? Well, he came to the presidency by accident. So there was a president who sat on top of all of this, this politicized patronage network. He appointed Theodore Roosevelt, largely for reputational reasons. There was this reformist guy to the vice presidency, which is a powerless office in the US government. But then the president died accidentally. And then suddenly this outsider, who was outside of all of these patronage networks, became the president. All of his legislators controlled patronage. Those were his political competitors, and so he he started pushing civil service reform really hard across the U.S. federal government. Um, So even in a case like the U.S., part of the explanation here is very much that this is accidental, this is very rare, government-wide, and so it's hard to take that and say this is how you get to good government. Um, and of course, it's also not so actionable, right? So like we, as a reformer, ideally we shouldn't go around assassinating sitting presidents so that reformist vice presidents get into, get into office. So then the question is, how, how, what else can we do then if these political economy approaches don't immediately help us? And so a third approach, which was popularized by Matt Andrews is the idea, let's forget about sort of best practice laws. Let's generally forget about best practice. Let's just focus on solving local problems in the way that government is managed. Um, This sort of has a classic public administration referent, which is the idea of muddling through. The way that we improve government is we muddle towards, muddling through towards better government. Um, And so the underlying intuition is all these governments around the world have, have adopted these best practice reform laws. That has made all of them look better, but none of them really work better. Um, So let's forget about this press practice, let's instead focus just on local problems in the local context. So this government has a problem with public financial management, because its Excel sheet is not working very well, let's get to a better Excel sheet. I'm using an exaggerated example. And then let's iterate that and improve and improve that way. Now, this of course had a lot of intuitive appeal. Who would be against the idea of fixing local problems? Who would be against the idea of taking into con- sort of taking seriously local context, right? That seems, that seems valuable um, and in a way uncontestable. But of course, if you take this further, it is in some sense the death knell of comparative public management scholarship. Because what you're saying here is that we can't really learn from elsewhere. Best practice solutions from elsewhere don't really have much relevance for us we just focus on local problems. And so the idea of scholarship that tells us sort of what works, where is, is not really that insightful because ultimately I'm just going to iterate over whatever local particular problem an organization has. And of course, if you come to that conclusion, and it's sort of taken anger to the extreme here, but if you come to that conclusion, you, you would think that ideally there's sort of hard evidence backing this up. But the problem with this kind of this kind of evidence for just focusing on local problems is that it's based on laws failing to achieve uh, improvements, right? So best practice laws fail. Hence, we shouldn't focus on best practice. But that a law fails doesn't mean that a practice fails, Okay? So what I showed you earlier is best practice merit legislation doesn't lead to improvements in merit practice. But that doesn't mean that improvements in merit practice in that particular management practice wouldn't be desirable for governments across the world, And if we think that improvements in practice might still be valuable for governments around the world, um, then, of course, there is value in trying to understand what works across contexts. And there's value not just in iterating over problems. And we could think that's plausible because the private sector and a lot of recent literature management and, and also in economics is ripe with this idea that there are some things that make firms work better across places. And so you could think that there's value in identifying those. And a second problem with this, with this idea that um, best practices has failed everywhere, so we just need to focus on local problems, is that it disregards that the state is a lot, a lot more heterogeneous than you might think, okay? Let me give you an example from Albania. Okay, and this is joint work with Jan-Maria Zaling, who's sitting in the audience here, uh, Kim Mickelson and, and others. <laughs> um, this is a graph here that shows you the presence or absence of one best practice, which is meritocratic recruitment, or the flip side of it, the share of public servants that tell us in a survey that they've been hired into government through political connections. Okay, so this is the share of public servants that tell us, I got my job thanks to support from politicians, people with political links. And these are different institutions inside the Albanian government. And so you can see that in some, almost half of public servants tell us, yeah, I got my job through support from politicians. In others, it's almost zero. So in other words, there are some institutions that appear to be doing much better in management than others. And so this idea that sort of best practice generally failed Is a little bit inconsistent with the idea that government institutions actually work very differently and have some good management practices in place and others not okay so if that's the case if you believe that for a second that there might be best practices that could be effective in a lot of contexts then let me introduce you and try to persuade you of an alternative and fourth approach to getting to good government and this approach uses data and it uses data to identify what kind of practices made governments work better everywhere and it uses data to identify which of them are missing in which organization okay so these are the two components so the data is basically what kind of management practices are management foundations of good government so they lead to better outcomes everywhere and we can use microdata across a lot of countries to identify those And then where are they missing? In other words, what kind of management practices does what kind of institution in what country need? And that's important because, of course, different institutions might have some good practices in place and other good practices not in place. And maybe I can help us identify with them or identify those. I should say that there are a lot of different data sources uh, uh, for this. So as uh, as Ben kindly mentioned, I have a forthcoming edited volume uh, with the book with the World Bank uh, jointly with Dan Rogger. Uh, that looks at the range of data sources, so survey data, administrative data, like you can use the payroll, procurement data, tax data. It has over 1,000 pages, so I will spare you that tonight. And what I focus on instead is just one type of data source to make this point, and that is basically surveys, uh, survey experiments and lab games with bureaucrats. And In particular, I'll draw on a project where we surveyed, this is again with, with uh, Jan and uh, meier Zaling and Kim Mickelson, while well, we surveyed 23,000 civil servants in 10 countries and 400 institutions, and then later on this was funded by, uh, by the British Academy and DFID, and then later on I'll extrapolate that to some other countries um, as well. And what we find in this data is that there are a number of management practices that in country after country after country are associated with a more motivated, a more committed, and a more ethical civil service. And those are the kind of management practices that we think are management foundations of good government that no matter where you implement them they tend to be associated with a more effective civil service here are some examples from the kinds of things we see in the data merit examinations for recruitment we've discussed that quite a bit Uh, we also see that performance incentives matter in a very particular way i'll talk about that in a second we also see that pay matters and that leadership matters before discussing what that means let me just briefly show you the kind of data that we use to substantiate that these are management practices that make the civil service more effective everywhere. Um, So just using merit exams as as an example here. Um, So for instance, we find observationally that in seven out of nine countries, public servants that were hired through a merit exam are more motivated to work hard. They're also more motivated to serve the public. Uh, We find survey experimentally through conjoints that in five out of five countries, bureaucrats perceive colleagues that are hired through merit exams to be less corrupt Um, And we also have lab in the field evidence from four countries that shows that bureaucrats that are hired based on merit uh, steal less in the lab and behave uh, more pro-socially in the lab. So this lab is basically you you have incentivized games where monetary amounts are involved, and you're trying to see who is cheating, who is behaving pro-socially, for instance. Uh, And this is joint work with Jan and Kim, but also with Virginia Virginia Oliveros, uh, Breaker Design, and Rachel Siegman. So when I say there's sort of management practices that make governments work better in a lot of different places, what I'm referring to is this kind of evidence that basically shows that in country after country after country, we see positive effects of certain management practices. And we see that for for married examinations. We also see that for performance incentives, in particular incentives that give public servants a sense that their work performance matters in some way. So we find that they're more motivated if you believe that putting in more effort gives you a prospect of potential prospect of a pay rise or prospect of a promotion, for instance. So this is what we mean with, with performance incentives. We also find that paying public servants more is not associated with more motivated public servants, but it is associated with retention of the more motivated types. So what it means is that if I pay you more, that doesn't make you work harder right now, but it means that if you're the more motivated type who has, it, has an easier time finding a private sector job, you're more likely to stay if I pay you more. So it allows you to retain the more motivated public servants across countries. And then sort of trivially, we also find that there are certain leadership practices that make employees more motivated, uh, more committed uh, across countries. So for instance, if you have a leader uh, that has practices that instill a sense of mission identification, that you care about the mission of your organization, the leader transmits that, that makes people more motivated across countries. So this is just to give you a flavor of sort of the kind of management practices that we find across countries to be associated with more effective civil services. so, so this approach basically first uses data to identify those practices and then, of course, in a second step to get to reform, to get to good government, you don't need to have data on whether a certain government has those practices in place. So in other words, you want to have data that helps you identify the gap between what a government does and what best practice is. Okay? And so let me just give you an example of, of this. So this is here a 10 country comparison of the share of public servants that get their first job, that get promotions and pay rises through connections. Okay, so they tell us I got my first job thanks to support from Connections. <clears throat> and so you can see in a place like Nepal, for instance, three quarters of public servants tell us that they get their first job through, uh, through Connections. Uh, in a place like Albania, the number is around 50%. Um, and even in a place like Chile, over a third of public servants tell us they get their job through Connections. This is helpful because it can allow you, in the first place, to understand why you might have improvement potential. So for instance, Nepal, the pay in Nepal is not really put it aside. So very few people tell us they get better pay through connections, but the recruitment is. So it helps you pinpoint that. Um, but of course, in making that transparent, it can also generate demand for reform at the country level. Let me just show you an example from, uh, from uh, Chile here. So with the Chilean government, uh, this is again joint work with Yan and Kim and also Javier Fuensalida and the civil service agency. Uh, we ran a national survey of public servants with sort of about 25,000 uh, public employees. One of the things we just asked them is how they got their jobs. A third of them, a third of them told us, we got our th- jobs through connections. That was not a known quantity at the time in that country. So people didn't really know that this kind of phenomenon is so widespread, particularly because it's people themselves admitting in a survey that they get their jobs through connections. And that then led to over uh, sort of 50 newspaper articles, radio, TV, CNN, etc., uh, which, which of course suddenly put some pressure on the government that should, I should say wanted to push this anyway, um, to, to push this and then it also contributed to an intervention then by the Minister of Finance and the civil service director to announce new legislation to make the civil service more, more meritocratic. Um, so by making this, this, these kind of gaps in best practice transparent, you can sometimes generate demand for reform and that can then lead to better civil services. But of course that can happen not just at the country level, but one of the beauties about microdata is that it's much more granular. So you can understand these problems at the level of the country, but also at the level of each organization. Um, so just let me show you the example of Chile again. This is the share of public servants hired through merit exams in different institutions in Chile. And so you can see at the top end, there's some institutions where most people get hired through merit examinations. And inside the same government, there's some institutions where virtually nobody is hired through a merit exam, right? And so that can pinpoint both for the government, central government as a whole, but also for individual institutions where the improvement opportunities lie. So in conclusion, what I was trying to convince you here is that when we want to get to good government, uh, we don't just have to rely on laws, we don't just have to rely on political economy, we don't just have to rely on on local problem solving, we can also rely on data. And data can help us identify both what kind of practices globally are best practices. So best practices in the sense that they make governments work better, they make civil services more effective. I call those here the management foundations of, of good government. And data can also help us identify in which organization which of these management practices are missing. And so can spur reform uh, in that way as well. OK. So that was for those of you who are really interested in the Global South, OK? So now let me add two slides for those of you who are really interested in this country, and that's what you really came for. I don't know if there are any. So so I want to briefly talk about what are the implications of all of this for the United (coughs) Kingdom. in the United Kingdom, of course, if you think about this idea of management foundations of, of good government, this idea that we need to pay public servants sufficiently to retain the more motivated types, we need to depoliticize the civil service, if you just think about that intuitively, you might have some concerns about the extent to which the United Kingdom is moving away from the management foundations that brought it good government in the first place. Okay? And so what I want to do is just show you some data points to suggest that that concern might be very warranted. And those data points come uh, from another project It's called the Global Survey of Public Servants. Uh, so this is a joint initiative between uh, Jan and Kim, uh, between uh, and, uh, the World Bank Proxy Lab uh, and the Stanford Governance Project led by Francis Fukuyama, where we all realized that we were running surveys of public servants around the world in a very similar way. And then we decided, okay, let's harmonize that, make that comparable and try to maximize the number of countries and institutions that we can get this kind of comparable microdata on to inform better management. And so by now this data set has uh, 22 countries, over a thousand institutions, and over a million uh, respondents. And in the United Kingdom, the United Kingdom thankfully is one of the countries that actually runs these surveys itself. And so what we're doing is pulling that survey data into our data set, okay? So let me just show you two graphs on what we can learn from all of this about maintaining good government in this country. So the first graph compares pay satisfaction in the United Kingdom to other countries around the world. So this is the share of public servants that is satisfied with their pay. So I earlier suggested that that is not associated with a more motivated public servant, but it is associated with the retention of more motivated types. Okay. and so what you can see here is that in the United Kingdom, 36 percent of public servants are satisfied with their pay. In global comparison, that is relatively low. So in a place like the United States, for instance, The share is 63%. Even in a place like Albania, more public servants are satisfied with their pay than in the UK. Even in a place like the Philippines, more public servants are satisfied with their pay than in the UK. And so if you believe that that's an important management practice to retain more motivated types, you might be worried about that. I should also say this data is before the cost of living crisis, so it looks a lot worse now than it did then. Uh, But it might give you an idea about why we should think it's normal that there's record turnover in the civil service and why we might be worried about that and why we should think it's normal that people are going on strike. Let me give you another uh, related graph. In this graph, we're showing different organisations in the UK civil service. Okay, Pay satisfaction, different organisations in the UK civil service compared to other countries around the world. So the light blue bars here basically, is each light blue bar here is a civil service organisation in the United Kingdom and then each uh, grey, dark grey bar here is another country. And what you can see here is that there are some institutions in the UK civil service where pay satisfaction is lower than in virtually any other government around the world. Um, So at the bottom end, you can see there are institutions that have lower pay satisfaction than in Liberia, than in Ethiopia, and then many other governments that are having much greater struggles in public administration than the United Kingdom. And so if this is your distribution before a cost of living crisis, you might be somewhat worried that you're undoing the very management foundations that brought this country good government uh, in the first place. All right. So that was it for the substance of my inaugural. Um, Because I have a captive audience, this is quite unusual, you have to forgive me, particularly if you're a student, you have to forgive me that I'm gonna uh, end on a brief epilogue epilogue with a brief marketing spiel for the captive audience of UCL academics in this room. You have to forgive me for that, okay? So in this this talk, I talked a lot about uh, motivation of civil servants. Now I wanna briefly talk about motivation of academics. Um, So why is it that an academic might be motivated to work hard? So we might be motivated to work hard because our jobs are really interesting. We get to research all these things that we're interested in. Uh, We might be motivated to work hard, uh, and it's interesting to work with students. And we might be motivated to work hard because our jobs give us purpose. Uh, We can teach uh, the next generation. We can do research that hopefully makes the world a better place. Uh, We we might be motivated to work hard uh, because we want a promotion. We want to improve our career trajectory. right? And most of us are probably motivated by some combination of all of these things. So this is now for the UCL academics in this room, forgive me. Now, what if I told you, you could have more of all of that, okay? You could have a job that is more motivating, more meaningful, and puts you on a better career trajectory, okay? So let me spend one slide trying to convince you that if you co-produce research with policymakers, you can get there, okay? Uh, Now, in my own experience, it, it can make your research more meaningful because you immediately have people that are really interested in in your research. Uh, So the most expensive part of running a survey of public servants is the time of public servants paid by government, right? So they have a natural interest in wanting this to be useful for them. They have a natural interest in your findings. And of course, this doesn't just apply to co-producing research on public servants. You can co-produce a lot of other forms of public research, uh, research as well. It can also make your job more enjoyable because it gets you to interact with a broader set of people. Uh, It's not just academics. Academics are very nice, but there are also other people that are interesting in life, right? So you can interact with governments, with unions, with civil society organizations. Um, It can also make your job more interesting because co-producing research means you have, by definition, unique data that is a result of that co-production. Data that nobody else has access to. And so as a result of that, you might be able to publish different things, things that are potentially even more interesting. And lastly of course it's also something that that funders appreciate uh, in a grant application and something that might help you with your with your promotion um, so in short if you're interested in co-producing research with policymakers, or more generally if you're interested in enhancing the public uh, and policy impact of your work do come talk to us at the ucl policy lab uh, we are here to support ucl academics and e- in economics and political science okay so forgive me for that um, and then very lastly of course i need to say a lot of thanks here. Um, of course, to all of you for, uh, for coming tonight, uh, to, to Martin for, for taking the time for the appreciation. Uh, I also need to thank uh, my co-authors. I, I, I must say I was slightly shocked. So there's a saying, it takes a village, right? And then I realized when I counted my co-authors last week, it actually took a village uh, <laughs> to, get me, to get me to this point. So I have 57 co-authors to thank for. Uh, I wanna thank particularly also uh, Jan, who's here tonight, Kim Mickelson, uh, they have survived me for 40 papers now, uh, or 40 publications. So I do appreciate that you still smile. Um, that's very nice. I also want to say thanks to uh, to a lot of funders who, who who funded this work. If you're listening to this, keep it coming. Um, <laughs> uh, I want to say thanks to the to the department. Um, there are a lot of, you know, employee surveys in universities that sort of paint the picture that uh, working in a university is is generally a terrible life choice right sort of for (laughs) academics like so you would think they have have very irrational utility functions to to want to be in that space Um, but I found the department to be exactly the opposite of that and I hope you have that as as students that experience as well people are incredibly nice um, and uh, and it's been just a privilege privilege working here so thanks so much to all of the colleagues I also want to say a particular thanks to uh, to David and Jennifer for surviving me uh, for three years as head of teaching, thank you very much. And Ben, of course, for surviving and supporting me as, as co-director of the, of the Policy Lab. So thank you so much. Oh, and I should say, I have to thank my wife and my children who decided, who decided that a flu is more important than my inaugural, than daddy's inaugural, which um, I'll have to forgive them, but my wife might be watching this later. So thank you very much uh, for all the support as well. Thank you so much.
3: So thank you all very much for listening, I know that I have a very difficult job between drink and, um, you know, kind of, well, I'm standing between you and a drink, um, and um, um, and I'm not even here sort of like in a best man's speech where you expect that I make a few crude jokes about Christian, although I'd love to, um, but um, so, um, well, and now I even destroy your funny, lovely slides here, but um, so so this is clearly you know i i didn't even know it was called an appreciation but my notes were actually an appreciation uh you know i've um, you know i remember sort of christian's emergence in various uh, phd workshops now long abandoned which were sort of like phd self-help sessions i remember those well to uh, to a colleague um, at lse um you know i was very happy with the citations here in public administration because that sort of brought back very happy memories of me dealing with management central late at night um before why decided that i was uh, not as helpful as other people um uh, but i also um kind of can sort of see you know kind of joint suffering on on the football terraces of Craven Cottage, and a certain German um, beer keller uh, uh, when uh, his favorite team, VfB Stuttgart, was close to relegation. So in many ways, I can tell you, you know, apart from sort of academic gurus that have clearly sort of been floating through, one can also see a very strong influence of the VfB Stuttgart tradition of footballing, in particular, impersonated by two footballers I would sing, uh, single out, namely Karl-Heinz Förster and Guido Buchwald. Uh, most of you will not know about these, but I hope Christian at least gets appreciate uh, the kind of uh, tough defending Uh, these two people um, into sense. So, um, but um, before, that was my last reference um, to football, um, I promise. Um, so, um, so I mean, in many ways, it's really sort of, I mean, you finished off on an epilogue. I would sort of call this speech more like an intermezzo or German zwischenspiel between sort of, you know, we had the first act, now we can sort of see where basically sort of the second act will go. And, you know, you gave us some lovely uh, kind, of, um, uh, kind of ideas uh, about these kind of... Um, um, kind of where uh, this research will go going. But I think sort of it really is very impressive how Christian, together with his colleagues like Jan, also former colleague, uh, you know, kind of we both were sort of, okay, I'm supposed to move, uh, so I'm actually on camera rather than an anonymous voice. Um, uh, a bit like GDR television, anonymous voices. But, but um, who basically has made sort of a very distinct um, kind of impression uh, on the field and in many ways... Um, as you could sort of see in these various sort of speaking to deficits in the literature has sort of made uh, distinct contributions on, you know, kind of this uh, sort of, to some extent also, um, you know, f- fills my own prejudices, although I would possibly call myself more of a muddling through a, uh, or Durchwurstler in German, as, um, as you might uh, want to be one. But, um, but for example, I think sort of on the idea of merit too, I think sort of the critical concern that I, uh, sort of when I did my research in the Caribbean, for example, that it wasn't, there was a law, but ultimately the exam applied to a particular cultural segment of the society rather than another. So it's even the practice in itself might be culturally shamed and discriminatory, which you could clearly then see sort of in the performance and the motivational surveys that were conducted on the bureaucracy uh, and, and such like about sort of how people were valued and so on. So the social construction of merit in itself, I think, is sort of something which sort of goes and fits perfectly into a sort of your line of research. Similarly, political economy approaches are, you know, as as we heard, very often quite static. Um, they s- assume a certain stability of a national sort of political endowment, you might want to call it, and it cannot really sort of cope with sort of, uh, again, sort of where sort of, um, you know, as, as we heard here um in the research but also sort of in my world where basically the you know it doesn't deal with differential kind of performances you might say uh, across different sectors Um, for example in the area of regulation which is sort of something that gets me out of bed and uh, Ben I can assure you there's plenty of exciting stories there too Um, uh, and then certainly you know too on on pay I think which is sort of quite an important part and one that not many people are sort of that fascinated about so it's lovely to you know kind of hear stories about uh, pay here too and I think it's not just sort of pay satisfaction because it's sort of uh, seeing that slide brings back a memory of me um, sort of sitting in a badly air conditioned office in Trinidad where basically a civil servant was telling me how badly paid civil servants were in Trinidad. It was terrible and basically every civil servant should be paid like the civil service in Singapore, which at the time was sort of seen as sort of the gold standard also by World Bank, you know, pay them a lot uh, sort of thing. But then unfortunately I pulled out a graph which showed in power purchasing parity terms he was earning much more than his colleagues in Singapore, uh, on which time um, my interview ended very quickly, which is sort of a uh, never show controversial graphs uh, to your interview partner uh, research method. But I think sort of these kind of elements, I think, sort of speak directly to the, the key concerns that we heard here uh, from Christians to so basically to to advance knowledge and progress, you know, for the field of practice, but also have sort of direct sort of linkages to uh, central sort of theoretical concerns. And I think sort of the call for understanding these, you might call it, sort of management practices that are shown in a, large, in, in a large amount of cases to have a, unit, have a beneficial effect in the sense of good governance and so on is sort of something central which some people in the public management literature would then sort of lead to a sort of call for extrapolation, so how can we sort of use the mechanisms we identify and make them work uh, in another place. And here sort of Christians uh, and colleagues approach of government analytics backed by careful surveys, by interviews, you know, kind of openness of methods carefully designed, I think is sort of offering a very distinct uh, kind of note uh, to the kind of literature uh, which is very often sort of characterised by institutional forgetfulness, uh, uh, often ignores uh, sort of cultural um, Context or the persuasive state, and in many ways, uh, when I sort of was pondering um, what I was going to say here, which you know, kind of you might think is completely misfiring, so but at least I was pondering about it. Um, sort of one book which I thought was kind of most closely sort of related to sort of the broader concerns about how we can think about these universal management practices, and we can sort of how can we make them work where they might be not working. I think sort of led me sort of to 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 take out um, my uh, my. Um, book by Herbert Simon on basically sort of uh, administrative behavior and so on. And here basically sort of, you know, kind of, I like golden odies. It's a bit like, you know, I like classic gold, right, and that sort of thing. Uh, Herbert Simon, about 70 years ago, wrote about sort of what should an administrative science should be like, and it was sort of a concern about we don't really know much. Some people say there should be specialisation. Other people say there should be large-scale large mon- uh, mergers of organisations, you know, what does specialisation mean, and all these kind of things. And he actually called for a science of administration that, quote, not necessarily offered universal laws, but knowledge of circumstances under which one or another guideline takes on special importance. And I think very much what we heard here today about this idea about sort of universal management practices, um, and then basically identifying the conditions under which they work or why they are not there, and how to make them basically work in a particular context, is sort of central to that. So in many ways, and you may not want that, uh, you know, you may not want Caroline's Fursta, uh, but uh, you know, I hope you like at least Herbert Simon. Uh, but I think very much sort of this research uh, that uh, Christian is pursuing and the agenda that we heard about is very much in that kind of uh, tradition. So in many ways. Uh, Christian, congratulations and uh, onwards to drink and uh, a further long, long kind of set of research outputs. So thank you very much.